you are listening to Let's Talk Security podcast where we interview cybersecurity startup founders and enterprise CEOs cover the latest in security threats and best practices I am Arvind a founder of Newfang and Skizzy Welcome to today's show Paul uh, excited to be talking to you uh, on, on today's show we are talking about uh, post quantum iot security with paul clayson so some stats for our listeners today is 98% of iot devices are currently unsecured on average a data breach costs about 8.2 million and uh, paul joined agile pq which was started to address these issues they have raised in total about uh, 10 million dollars uh, welcome paul thank you very much for having us appreciate the opportunity to be on your show So Paul you joined Agile uh, PQ in 2017 uh, and before that you were the CEO of around five startups what made you build and be a part of uh, Agile PQ Oh the immense need there is yeah. such a need for security especially on very small IoT or small processor devices and there's such an immense need to build post quantum security now protect against quantum computers when they become mainstream in the near future. And I saw that market, saw the opportunity, uh saw the technology that had initially been built, saw that we could build it into a product quite rapidly and uh that drove me to uh to begin working with this company. I want to dive a bit into that part of, you know, your motivations and the experience. Uh but before that uh, you were the chief of staff in washington dc for a couple of congressmen you know early in your career and then went on to nanotech security and energy companies so could you walk us through your journey from there to these deep tech companies uh, early in my career when i was in my early 20s i got involved in the united states politics mm-hmm. i was chief of staff to two congressmen and i worked for two uh, two us presidents out of the white house and I uh, did a lot of work and a lot of what I learned there was focused very deeply on strategy how do you strategically develop plans for either uh winning a campaign or uh developing legislation passing legislation helping uh colleagues get their legislation passed it's just a very very strategic business and I learned from a couple of the best in the business back many years ago. So as I made the transition from politics into business, I was always looking at a strategic approach. I spent some time in in finance firms, uh, money management and and uh capital management firms. Uh then made the switch over to the technology world where I wanted to be on the operating side to um develop equity in companies to uh, start companies to help bring new technologies to market because of the high energy and the fast pace and the and the high octane environment of new emerging technologies and I really love that and and that's how I got into the field of new and emerging technologies I happen to have not focused on a single industry I've done everything from uh speech recognition software to uh nanotechnology nanotechnology coatings to uh semiconductor uh PCB manufacturing uh to solar energy and uh encryption software but the common element among all of those is looking at the market looking at strategy and trying to determine how we make something 
out of new technology. These companies that you worked at, where we were trying to figure out how to commercialize and uh, bring them to market, how did you go about doing that? Any interesting stories? Uh, the, the reason I'm asking is the very few playbooks about you know how how do you bring these technologies to market and sell and validate? Sure, sure. Uh, you know, I'm not sure it's a good idea for everybody because when you're bringing new emerging technologies to market with a new and emerging company and a new and emerging industry, um, there are some real difficulties in getting that done because oftentimes you're fighting the status quo, you're fighting the norm. People sometimes don't believe that you can do what you do. Uh, they, they're so attached to the old technology, to the normalized patterns and the normalized behaviors that when a new and often disruptive technology can, comes along, it can be very difficult for people to adopt. We have that in our company right this moment in our encryption software company. So some of the key things about getting these companies to market include things like uh, educating the market. You have to become a thought leader first that forces people to think out of the box. Think about new ways to do certain things. Then from that thought leadership, beginning to show product that can meet the paradigm of the new thought leadership. And then from there, you have to be able to have extraordinary testing uh, procedures and testing data that shows people that this is not something that is untested and unreliable and uh, and and but indeed it may be new but it is extraordinarily uh, beneficial and uh, and creates a new paradigm of benefit in your in your industry so that testing becomes very very important and the third is to develop great relationships with finance firms who see you as a partner, see you as someone who can take deep technology and drive it to market in a very productive way. That is a very difficult uh, challenge because sometimes investors' timeline is they want a 10x turnaround in two years. Uh, new technologies, because of the education portion of this, because of the deep technology the nature of it, and because of the testing regimens and, and convincing um, dialogue that has to go on with engineers and companies that will adopt and buy your technology sometimes takes a longer cycle than that two-year cycle. So you have to uh, have partners who are willing to look at you, believe in you, and know that uh, you are willing uh, to go through that if they are, that you're willing to continue to push that down the road uh, if they are. And then the last principle that I would always say is you've always got to check your thinking because in brand new companies, you can be, you can get caught up in, in thinking you have the right features and benefits to your product when in fact that is not what's going to meet the market. Uh, so you sometimes have to develop pricing regimens and pricing schemes and technology uh, uh, benefits to your product that have greater benefit that maybe have been used in past uh, companies, those same benefits that people are accustomed to, but do it in a way that outperforms previous products. Even though there may be other benefits, other things that can come to the market, sometimes those are harder to adopt. So you have to be willing to to uh, look, look at the market. I call it when I'm training internally with our people, 
I tell them we have to be extraordinarily easy for people to give us their money. Very, very, if we're fighting every aspect of the traditional way that they've done things, it's a much harder uh, task, a much heavier lift. It's uh, pushing the rope uphill in every aspect. If you can blend into some of what they're accustomed to, but push the limit on others, then we become far easier for people to give us their money uh, in the early days. And then we can lead them into new functionality as we go forward. Those are those are some of the things that I've learned. With you on that in terms of uh, what they are used to and make it very easy for them to give you money. Uh, for all the progress we have made in SaaS, I feel that cybersecurity is still you know a decade decade and a half lagging in terms of usability deployment uh, it could be a function of the nature of the environments they run in but i still feel like you know we have a long way to go in making even smaller firms uh, get used to it you brought up an interesting point about product features right does a product sort of translate or have the features in it to realize the solution that you you're pitching to the customers in the early stage how do you go about figuring this because customers are so diverse especially the larger enterprises uh, is there a framework that has sort of worked for you in uh, bridging this gap in knowledge there is so um there are um there are some key things that we we try to look at let me let me use our encryption software as a as a good example sure. here so um It's a very interesting paradox in the IoT world today that people are far more interested in seeing if they are being hacked or if they are being attacked either internally or externally from their IoT devices than they are stopping those attacks right now. And I think it's because people fundamentally uh, don't believe that they're under attack. It's like uh, the ancient saying uh, that cropped up many years ago if if a tree falls in a forest and nobody's around to hear it was there actually a sound um people look at hacking attacks and they think i'm not being a ha- hacked so i don't need to build security into my device when in reality we know everybody's being hacked and they're being hacked at very high rates and and uh and that's causing all kinds of problems for them that they may not even realize at this point. So, with our encryption software, we were telling people this, but it was a very hard and slow adoption for people to say we uh we must, you know, we we would have to know if we're being attacked. So, we started looking at adding visibility tools where people could see if they were attacked. But the there was another couple of things that really caught attention of some early adopters and customers for us one was that um our technology because of its nature so our encryption algorithms are only uh 2.4 kilobytes in size the encryption the encryption that's on your smartphone takes 3000 kilobytes to encode a single message and to decode a single message on the back end it's it's uh 1000 times uh larger code that's required there we were able to create a very disruptive product that cut out a thousand uh times or that created a thousand times smaller code size mm-hmm. as a result of that we were able to run encryption much faster as much as 10 times faster and we were able to run encryption as much 
uh, with using 80% less battery power. That single factor of using less battery power on an IoT device caught the attention of some people that didn't care much about the encryption, but they really loved really? the fact that by using our technology, they were going to save battery power and still have some sort of security. That was pretty important. So the point about this is sometimes you have to lead with things that you wouldn't think would be the leading benefit to a product, but it's what really catches somebody's attention. Then down the road, once they see the extraordinary benefits of your technology from a security standpoint, then they want it for security. They know that it's faster. They know that it uh, uses a lot less energy, and and uh, they can take it take it forward uh, for all of the benefits that it espouses. But those, you know, sometimes you just have to be flexible. You really have to look at what your market is telling you about the value of your product. Right. Give visibility to them figuring out. Uh do they have the problem that you claim they do in the first place and uh, and then listen to just listen to the market look uh, most salespeople are trained to go out and talk somebody into using your product mm-hmm. and in early emerging technologies there you have to have a shift in the sales process the shift is you have to listen somebody into buying your product that means you have to tremendously listen to all of the things that they're struggling with and then match the features, functions, and benefits of your product to what their uh, needs are. And then add some of the additional benefits that you have to the mix that makes you highly competitive. So listening becomes an extraordinary benefit and an extraordinary skill in sales and customer service and product management. I guess now the term is called uh, consultative selling. Great points about that. You briefly touched about what Agile PQ does, but could you elaborate more on what it specifically is used for in IoT devices? So IoT devices, uh, true IoT devices, have very small processors. They're classified, uh, as you know, for for uh, for the size of their processing power. Class zero is the smallest with less than 100 kilobytes of total processing power. Class two is around 100 kilobytes. Class three is up to 250 kilobytes in total processing power. These are extraordinarily small devices that don't have much capacity on them, but they're not required to do a lot of computing. They, some of them may be an off-on switch. Others may measure temperature or vibration or weight or, uh, or, or uh, weather conditions. Some of them may count number of faces in a crowd. Some of them may count number of cars on a freeway. Some of them may record... Um, license plate numbers moving through a street. Some of them may uh, just monitor glucose injection in a healthcare device. There are all kinds of applications uh, in these very, very uh, small devices. So um, that data collected from those very small devices is really the gold standard in today's digital world. Uh, Data means everything. You can access, develop, and sell data on its own, let alone for the benefit that it, it may provide uh, in an industrial manufacturing, uh, civic commercial environment, or even consumer environment. That data is really, really valuable. So you don't want somebody accessing the data. You don't want somebody changing the data. You don't want somebody erasing the data. And you don't want somebody getting access to 
critical records that you have by following the stream of that data into a broader server environment. We created an encryption. Right. Work on the smallest of IoT devices. As I mentioned, our encryption code itself is only two and a half kilobytes. Deploying that on a device can take another six, uh, six or seven uh, kilobytes uh, to deploy it, but still the code is extraordinarily small. At its highest point, we would take less than 10% of the capacity of the smallest class zero device. That means there's plenty of space left for the native function on the device to collect the data and send it back to the server. In our case, we provide that kind of encryption. We provide authentication and authorization. Uh, we provide the functions of certificate-based security. Uh, we provide uh, multiple layers of security on every IoT device that allows that data to be secured and the device to be secured uh, for uh, the manufacturer and the owner of those devices. Got it. This is a drastic reduction that you mentioned, right? From 3000 kilobytes to 2 kilobytes and at the end results in about 10. So what is happening behind the scenes that has allowed you to come to this space? Well, we filed uh, 16 patents and have uh, 15 more patents pending on the technology wherein we looked at the, um, we look at what happens on your smartphone when it encrypts a single message. Takes 3,000 kilobytes or 3 megabytes, and it takes 14 rounds of encryption and well over 100 algorithms to get that done. Uh, that's because of the nature of your device having to, that may be an Android-based device, having to speak with an, uh, an Apple uh, IoT-based device or to a server or, or to an IoT device. It has to account for all of those different multiples of hardware, software, code languages, and so forth. So it has to have multiple algorithms. In our case, one of the things that we did was we took out all of the unnecessary algorithms in an encryption system that uh, forced the technology uh, to use these encryptions and go through 14 rounds. We stripped out everything that was unnecessary. Because when you're sending a, let's just take in a simplest form, an off-on switch on an industrial machine. Mm -hmm. the, the information on that turning on and turning off is only sent in some sort of periodic uh, programmed uh, time frame. And that periodic programmed time frame, uh, let's say it was uh, once an hour, so 24 times a day, it was turning something on and turning it back off. That is a very small piece of data, and it's being sent back and forth from an IoT device to a server, sometimes through a gateway, sometimes not, mm -hmm. but it's being sent back and forth. Well, you don't need, you know the, you know the processor, the code language, uh, the software um, that is on that IoT device. It's known to the server on the backside. So you don't need all these algorithms to account for a lot of different differentials. These are known differentials. So, we stripped out everything that's unnecessary on that code, left us with an extraordinarily small code. In fact, it's so small that on your smartphone, the, the key size that encrypts or encodes uh, the data on the front end and then decodes it on the back end is a 32-byte mm -hmm. key. That's uh, in an AES system, uh, AES and TLS system. 
We were able to strip SOMAC out of the operating code. We increased the size of our keys to 288 bytes. That means our technology is far more secure, but far smaller and far faster and uses far less energy. That's a pretty compelling story to go to market with. So nice. by stripping a lot of that out, we did that. And in the process of that, we built a couple of things into our algorithms. Combined with that code size, it makes us post-quantum in nature. So when quantum computers become mainstream, we'll be able to withstand, uh, our security will be able to remain secure in a post-quantum environment. Got it. It's a pretty big point about, you know, the post-quantum world. It's sort of like the sticking time bomb that uh, everyone's trying to figure out what to do about is that a threat anytime soon or how many years do you think uh, that would become a reality yeah there there are still some people who believe that that is 20 years out um some believe it's 15 some believe it's 10 but i can tell you the overwhelming preponderance of uh, computer scientists now are looking at this and saying we believe it's much closer than that it's probably four to five years out and some believe it's already here in terms of the initial beginning stages of the use of post quantum to the point where it could break existing encryption algorithms i read uh, dcube is now allowing people to get early access to their uh, quantum computer seems like it's much shorter than we think yeah i believe it is and and when it comes down to um, nation states building quantum computers uh, the big big nations are building this uh, between uh, germany between um uh, uh, germany china russia the united states uh, the big players who have put a lot of state money into building quantum computers we don't know how far along some of those are We're much farther further along than the market even knows could be like the enigma machine where they don't tell the the enemy that they have the key right and they pretend that they don't know yeah good analogy yep exactly you touched upon the ip and the patents uh, that you hold do you think you would ever open source your code base because apart from the financial implications of ip i'm thinking from the point of adoption right the more people adopt a standard the more secure the network gets and uh, the second order interoperability because now more devices can talk to each other what are your thoughts on this the answer to that is is yes we we do consider open sourcing and we may do that sooner then later uh, any company who is considering taking technology into open source must also have the tools and the technology available to be able to uh, monetize that technology in some way so we've been building the tools we have the tools ready and at some future point we'll likely open source the algorithm so that there's no uh, question currently when we work with customers we have to show them a lot of private testing red team attack testing uh certifications and various other things that we've done privately and that works but it doesn't work as well as if we were open source so we'll likely open source technology in the future got it uh, you mentioned some tools could you paint me a picture of what that looks like well most people want to buy a product they don't want to buy technology right. so if we open source the algorithm we would be open sourcing the technology so we have to have a product ready within that product is an SDK uh a developer's toolkit that is extremely easy to use has great documentation behind it uh ha- has the people 
ability for people to pick up that SDK and implement our technology into their application quite rapidly. Second, uh, with our technology, there needs to be a key distribution server that mm -hmm. uh, sources and distributes the keys uh, to secure the product. Uh, we built a very secure key distribution system that can be deployed either on site for a customer or we can do it in a SaaS model where somebody's running it through our hosted key server. So Got it. those um, those are some examples of some of the tools that we have. And then we have some additional tools, which I don't really talk about openly uh, in sure. the general market, which are proprietary. Sure. Similar to a traditional, how an open source is monetized, where there's a managed solution with features on top that is not just there in what's open source. Yes, Like correct. also WebRTC. Right, Absolutely. Video streaming. Absolutely. Got it. So, so at what stage do you sell to a customer? Is, is it to the manufacturer or is it to the the business that is actually selling these devices after purchasing it from manufacturer? At what stage does it uh, get integrated? So there's two general categories that we have had some success in. One is to the people, the middle uh, people developing the middleware. Sometimes that will be a manufacturer of a device or manufacturers wrong. Sometimes that will be a developer, an aggregator of a device. Sometimes it's independent companies who, who are middleware people that build communication systems between IoT devices and the cloud and back. Uh, but those middleware people are the ones who are controlling the communication stream from, uh, from end to end. And so we just integrate our technology with them. And because we're a software-based solution, we don't have a hardware component uh, of what we do. Uh, we're able to be extraordinarily flexible about where and how we implement that technology. Um, the second is really with uh, any um, uh, mobile network operator or an MNO as they're called in the industry um, who provides the connection for the communication system. So that could be anything from a cellular carrier, 4G or 5G, we've done a lot of work in 5G, uh, to uh, to a Sigfox or a Bluetooth or a LoRaWAN or a multiple, any, any multiple kinds of wireless connectivity because their connectivity typically is touching the communication stream from end to end. And anytime we do that, we're able to, uh, uh, make it a much more elegant and rapidly implemented uh, solution. Got it. So, so as an end consumer, right, from my point of view, then how do I figure out, because there is so many points where this could uh, be implemented, how do I know if the IT devices that I use are uh, secure or not? Uh, are there any markers, uh, or standards that they say that they follow for me to be able to know uh, that it's secure or not? Well, the first thing that I would say about consumer devices is you can pretty much be assured that they are not secure <laughs> at all. Uh, they may have a username and a password that you have to set up yeah. when you connect to a gateway, but that username and password, most people don't change. It comes with a default username and password. If they can hook it up and that default information works they just leave it there sometimes the username will be admin and then the password will be admin that's pretty creative um, uh, people get through those all the time even if they do change it there is clandestine software on the market that 
people can buy and they can get through usernames and passwords in a very rapid amount of time. That's a very minimal and usually wholly ineffective means of security. So you need a much more rich authentication and authorization system on a device, whether that's a certificate base or multiple other authentication authorization um, based technologies. So consumer devices are particularly open right now, and it's why you're seeing countries, uh, European Union passed laws under uh, uh, General Data Protection uh, Act, uh, GDPR standards that require a minimum level of security on consumer devices moving forward. Uh, State of California in the U.S. passed a similar law. The United States government uh, two weeks ago passed a law that all IoT devices must have a minimum level of security on board to be used uh, with the federal government. Uh, They're now considering consumer protection laws that will force security to be used on these IoT devices. And uh, and so it's coming to where governments are saying the ones who are really exposed here are consumers because they're buying devices and largely have faith that that device is secured when they buy it. And it's just simply not. So they're going to have to uh, develop consumer protection. I think the attitude toward commercial aspects is if you're willing to get sued and to lose money and lose your profitability because you're uh, because you're so lax, you're unwilling to put security on your devices, I guess you can pay the money instead of uh, secure the devices. They'll let business figure it out on their own. But they can, governments can secure who does business with them and how they consumers, and that's why you're seeing legislation. Yeah, this was an interesting point that was brought up by a previous guest also. His name was also Paul. He said, one of the major roadblocks in consumer security is that most don't even know that they are compromised. Until the hacker acts on it, they don't even realize that it's compromised. Uh, and I guess it's even more important now that Amazon is releasing its sidewalk feature. <laughs> now your devices uh, your and router can share Wi-Fi yep. with other devices. Yep. Yeah, when you, when you start having broad-based hotspots, yeah. uh, it gets more and more tricky. So the technology has to be on board the device. It can't just be technology that's picked up at the gateway as some sort of universal encryption. You've got to be able to protect those devices because that's where the hacking is taking place. That's where bad actors are grabbing data and writing the data upstream into into servers. And it becomes, and, and so the data that they're placing on data collected at the IoT point it becomes part of the generally accepted data stream uh, by the time it gets to the gateway and the gateway can't tell the difference about what was authorized and what wasn't. Okay. So you stop it at the device level. Uh, great, Paul. Uh, before we end our session, a uh, couple of quick questions. Uh, what are your recent favorite books and uh, what technologies are you excited by that are just entering the market? Well, books, we do an interesting thing in our company. We have what we call the book club. Um, Once a week, we have a 15 to 30 minute, basically stand up meeting with all employees. We choose a book um, and we assign each employee to go through and to be the presenter of a chapter in the book until we get all the way through it. And they apply it back to our business. The ground rules are that they can, they can, uh, teach and express anything they want. 
Uh, we ask them to apply it to the business. If they think that they find a principle in a book that we um, that we're doing well, they should point that out. If there's something we need to improve on, they should point that out. And everybody accepts their opinion and looks at it uh, in a in a light of trying to become better as an organization. It allows us to really uh, learn from each other and allows people who sometimes are more introverted and don't have a voice to have a voice when they want to. And it's been a great uh, thing for us. So recently we studied a, a book called Start With Why by Simon Sinek, a great book for people to think through, not only on a business front, but we encouraged a lot of our people internally to think through what their personal why is in their business. Why do you live? Why do you why do you do what you do? Why? What is the why about your life? Another book that has been very, very good for us is uh, a book by uh, Eric Barker called Barking Up the Wrong Tree. It forces you to think about a lot of uh, different uh, uh, aspects of business and things in a, in a very different way. So those are two of the recent that we studied in, internally uh, in the company. And... Um, I also think another book that's very, very good that causes people to have to think through how they communicate with others inside of a business environment is a book called Crucial Conversations. And uh, that's a very good book that provides a lot of how involved in, uh, in the teaching of the principles. Um, and what else? Uh, what was the second part of your question? I'm sorry, Armin. The technologies that you're excited by that are just entering the market. So I think anything having to do with artificial, true artificial intelligence that benefits our society where, uh, where we can create, where, where we can create greater uh, benefit and greater ease of life for people all around the world uh, in aspects that couldn't reach them before um, is, is a phenomenal, phenomenal uh, technology. I think that quantum computers, when they come online, will be really, really terrific for uh, the world. These are not computers that are going to end up being your laptop or your smart uh, or, or your your uh, desktop or your smartphone. These are computers that uh, have specific functions uh, that will solve huge problems. Some of it is artificial intelligence uh, will be a big use of it. Molecular modeling, um, mm-hmm. financial modeling, weather forecasting, uh, even even uh, uh, astronomy studies and, uh, and DNA biotechnology studies that can't be done yet because we don't have computers big enough to process trillions of data points in a very short amount of time. Those quantum computers will really, really change both our life and the quality of our life uh, going forward. They bring problems with them in terms of security and some other things. But the benefits that they will add are just phenomenal. Fantastic. Uh, thank you, Paul. It was a pleasure having you. It was a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for all your time. And uh, we'll look forward to talking to you again sometime. Thanks for listening. And see you again on next week's episode of Let's Talk Security.